Two and a Half Admins, Episode 6. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And we're going to have some free consulting for you. But first, a bit of news. And these are all suspiciously Ars Technica looking, these links that we've got here. I think someone here may have written them. The first one is uh, you bought a $140 laptop from Walmart, and it was amazing. It was the best laptop you've ever had, better than an XPS 13. Well, it was amazing. I'll give you that. <laughs> I don't know about the rest of your statement. What did you expect for a laptop that's now, I think, 130 Well, so honestly, what I expected is I expected a system with a 2.5 gigahertz boost clock, uh, dual core, A4-9120, um, admittedly only a couple of gigs of RAM and 32 gigs of solid state. But like at that point, you've described a totally decent Chromebook. So I was hoping for a totally decent, you know, cheap Chromebook without having to go through all the bullshit hassles of, you know, side loading Linux or opening it up and, you know, changing a hardware screw to be able to load it normally. Unfortunately, what I ended up with was a completely crippled system that had been underclocked to about half of what it normally ought to be. And uh, it was half as fast as a budget laptop nearly eight years old that I had also bought for $140 used back in 2017. You did mention in this article that you've got a C720P. I think that's just the C720 Chromebook with a touchscreen, right? Yeah. Yeah, because I've got a C720, which I gave to my mum when her laptop died. I installed Gallium OS on it, proper bare metal install. And yeah, it's only got two gigabytes of RAM, so sometimes it gets a bit slow. And I told her, yeah, don't open too many things at once. But uh, this was supposed to be just like a temporary laptop while I looked for something better for her. And she was like, oh, it's so light and, um, you know, it, this it's small and light. Oh, I love it. This is fine. You don't need to get me another one. Yeah, if you, if you don't open too many tabs, uh, you know, the old C720 is, is just fine. Um, the thing is, you know, on paper, that A4-9120 in that little Evo laptop should be twice as fast as that Celeron. But in reality, because of the way they've got this thing configured, it's half the speed. So it's not a question of it's fine as long as I don't open too many things. It's a question of at this processor speed, nothing is okay. But to be fair, the Linux that you tried on it was Fedora with GNOME, I assume. Did you not think to try something a bit lighter, like with XFCE? So the, the reason that I try, I've, I've caught a lot of flack for that. The reason that I tried Fedora is because it gave me a chance to look at, you know, some of the claims that, uh, you know, Wayland should perform a lot better than Xorg does on, you know, really crappy hardware. And this was the crappiest hardware I've ever had in my possession. So I gave it a shot. And I do believe that validated Fedora's claims about Wayland because, you know, once you actually got into like a YouTube video or whatever, um, it played really smoothly, which I could not say the same of the laptop under you know, Windows. But just anything else was horrible. And honestly, it, it just it wasn't worth trying a different distribution on it at that point because it was like, OK, once you get down to absolutely nothing left but CPU, this thing is just appalling. And. I know that uh, I know that the Celeron, you know, in this ancient C720 is fine with full on GNOME and Ubuntu. So if this isn't OK with GNOME and Fedora, I don't know. I, I kind of felt like I was just at the point where this thing is garbage at this price, no matter what. And I'm done spending time on it. So do you think the, the underclocking is because they don't have a fan in it? Yeah, it seems like a weird choice. If you're making a cheap laptop. Trying to make it silent seems like not 
high on anybody's priority list and they've just made it worse. <laughs> just think of all the copper they would have had to buy for the heatsink. You'd have needed copper for the heatsink. You'd have needed an actual system with like heat pipes. You'd have needed a route through the chassis for the fan. You'd have needed the fan itself. Uh, you would have also needed a larger battery because this thing, you know, only got like five hours uh, on the modern applications test from PC Mark 10 that most laptops, most small laptops I test get like 10 or 11. Presumably that 1080p panel was drawing quite a lot. That had to have been drawing the majority yeah. <laughs> of uh, of the power. But yeah, I mean, so at this point, if you make it perform better, um, the battery life is going to get worse. And uh, there's just everything on this laptop was like a bad choice made to conserve cost. I, I don't think there were really any parts in this thing that weren't remaindered. You know, I don't think there was any part in this laptop where they're like, OK, let's go buy this new for this laptop because it's a good choice. It strikes me as more of a case of what's the minimum that we can do to Frankenstein this remaindered stuff that we get for next to nothing into a vaguely functional laptop. Did you read the reviews on the Walmart site? I read every single one of those reviews before I even pitched uh, the R's management on me doing that review. <laughs> you know, the thing about it was they were split, you know, something like four to one with people that were uh, very inarticulately angry about the laptop and very inarticulately okay about the laptop as long as you understand that it's cheap. Yeah, it's a little delayed when using the pad to guide the arrow, someone <laughs> says. Yeah, I mean, it was very difficult to make heads or tails out of it and, you know, kind of do that fine art of, of figuring out where the truth lies in between the user reviews. And I thought, you know, if I can't figure out from reading these Walmart reviews whether this device is going to work for anything that I want to do with it, what chance does a normal consumer have? So this is going to be a good thing to get a hold of this thing and see what will it do, both in terms of its, you know, supposed purpose being a normal Windows computer for normal people. And also, you know, the, the kind of nerdy stuff for, you know, folks like us, like, hey, can I throw Linux on it and use it for really lightweight stuff? And what would be a good fit for that? Yeah, like it, it looked half decent until that, that picture where you highlighted where they moved the pipe key to like the most ridiculous location ever. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, pipe and backslash both just murdered. Yeah, it's like, how can I type anything? <laughs> yeah, and why is delete below backspace? That makes no sense. Because the power button is where the delete button is supposed to be. Oh, yeah. But I, I would have figured they would have lost numlock instead, honestly. Yeah, or do function backspace like on the Pinebook Pro. I, I think a lot of these answers boil down to, you know, BFYTW, which if you don't know what that means, BFYTW.com, visit it. It's a great site. Make sure you have audio on for that, too, because it's <laughs> fabulous. So basically, this is just taking advantage of people who don't have much money and whose kids need a laptop, and it shouldn't be sold. It's almost criminal, isn't it, to sell this? In my opinion, yes. Um, so Evu is basically a Walmart house brand now. And as far as I can tell, it's a little difficult to piece it together. They seem to have been around for a year or two prior to you know Walmart turning them into a house brand. And they've always kind of targeted this, holy crap, I didn't know a computer could be that cheap price bracket. So it's never been like great stuff, but it appears that the prices were lower and, you know, the actual specs were a little bit better before the, I don't know if acquisition is the right word, but, uh, you know, there's this longstanding pattern when, when you become a Walmart supplier, the rest of your business 
is basically just gone because, you know, 90% of your revenue comes from supplying Walmart. And now you need to do what Walmart says. And when Walmart says we need lower prices, well, you find a way to make lower prices. Yeah. So you're stuck with this thing or are you sending it back? So I'm, I'm stuck with it. Um, I, I'm not too mad. I actually have one more experiment with it. Um, some readers have asked us to cover Haiku, which recently got a, a new major release. Haiku, if you're not familiar with it, it's a very niche operating system. It's what BIOS, you know, from the, the Mac world back in the 90s eventually turned into. And I'm completely unfamiliar with it, but um, I agreed to review it. And then shortly after the EV report published, one of the Haiku fans that I hadn't spoken to yet reached out and said, hey, you should try Haiku on that Evu because Haiku is so much more efficient than Linux. I think there's a real chance that it's going to run great on that thing. So by God, that's what I'm going to do. Well, fingers crossed. All right. Well, a quick update on this SMR situation. You've published a couple of articles since we last spoke. And one of them is that Western Digital is actually going to start specifically calling out the CMR drives, the non-SMR ones. Yeah, it's it's kind of a new Coke sort of a deal. You know, um, Western Digital Red is still going to mean SMR, but now Western Digital Red only means SMR. And there's a new, uh, you know, WD Red Plus, and the only thing in Red Plus will be the CMR models that existed prior to SMR. So that's most of what we've been asking for, honestly, which is I when I want to when I buy a drive, I need to be able to know for sure that I'm getting the one I want. All we really asked for was the clear delineation of what's SMR and what isn't. Well, yes and no. I mean, this is totally sufficient for folks like us because we already know what SMR is and that we don't want it. Um, it's not really going to help a consumer who just, you know, went out and bought a Synology or Netgear or whatever NAS, and they just want to find the right disks for it. Well, because the other thing is, it sounds like they're going to try to keep the same model numbers, but how do you have two different models that are not the same thing? Oh, well, there were always different model numbers. The um, the model numbers that people were trying to use to differentiate these things before are like, you know, WT20 um, EFRX was a conventional drive and WD20 EFAX was the SMR drive. Um, so those internal model numbers have not changed. The problem was that even if you knew those model numbers, there's no guarantee that a reseller like Amazon or Newegg is going to accurately reflect those. Yeah. And even if they're mostly accurately reflecting it, there's just way too much likelihood that if they run out of one, you know, some yabo in the warehouse is going to go, ah, it's okay. I've got a Western Digital, you know, red two terabyte over here. Let me throw that in the box and send it. Yeah. Uh, and then you get the ridiculousness of having red, red plus and red pro. It's like, you already had all these colors to differentiate them. Why, why are you doing this to us? Yeah, we still got blue and we still got gold and we still got white. Purple. And you know, I'm, I'm waiting for Western Digital Extreme Plaid. <laughs> <laughs> and there's an update to the lawsuit as well, then. Yeah, this really gets to the heart of the matter, which is, is calling it a, a NAS drive when it's got SMR not you know, being full of shit. <laughs> yeah, mis-selling it. Yeah, this this doesn't really answer the the claims of the lawsuit. Um, the the Haddison Lucas lawsuit is alleging that advertising any SMR drive as built for NAS is false advertising, and they want to get an injunction to force Western Digital to stop doing that. Now, this new branding move does not answer that charge. 
What it does is it, you know, maybe makes it a little bit more difficult to convince a judge to hand down that injunction because they're like, well, you know, this didn't exactly solve it, but it's easier for a consumer to figure out what's going on now. So maybe that'll be enough. Maybe it won't. I certainly don't think it's enough to, you know, cause Haddix and Lucas to just drop the suit. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah, well, we'll have to keep an eye on that one. All right, well, let's move on then. If you want to get in contact with us, show at 2.5admins.com is the best way by email. If you want some free consulting, your questions answered by Jim and Alan, and to a lesser extent me. And if you want to support creation of these episodes, then you can do so on Patreon. All the details are on the website 2.5admins.com. All right, so let's do some of that free consulting. Someone who I assume wanted to remain anonymous. I'm sorry if you didn't, but it looked that way. I don't know. Anyway, the question is this. How would you all advise easing oneself into ZFS? And are there any GUI options like Gparted for ZFS or something? It seems obvious this person is just getting started uh, because you know there isn't really an analog for something like gparted and zfs cuz the whole point of zfs is not needing a tool like gparted uh you know the idea with zfs is that you take all of the space you have available and rather than making static partitions that you create file systems on you create this pool of space that you then create file systems out of and they borrow space as they need it, but also return it when they're done, uh, so that you don't end up with one partition needing more space and, you know, another one having all the free space and you can't really move them around. I don't think that's what they meant, Alan. I think they just meant a graphical manager for a multi-disc topology, which happens to be ZFS. Okay. I didn't know Gparted did anything other than editing partitions. It doesn't, but this is someone who's just getting started in multiple disk stuff, so I suspect that's what they meant. Well, because presumably you two just manage all your disks via the command line and would never use something like Gparted, but for someone, uh, well, like me still, on a, on a laptop or a desktop machine, like I used to have a desktop machine with four or five disks in it before I had a NAS, and it was very handy to open up Gparted and have a really good visualization of what all those disks were and what the file systems were on them. And so I suppose that's the question. Is there something that you can visualize where you are with ZFS, whereas you two just would do it on the command line, I assume. But is is there a visual way to do it? Yes and no. Um, I, I have seen a couple of projects pop up that offer you know some kind of graphical management for a local ZFS system. I, I don't think any of those are really mature enough to recommend right now. So if you're just saying, hey, I want a graphical interface to any arbitrary ZFS I've already got going on, the answer is Probably not so much. However, if you're just getting started, the easy answer there is uh, if you want a graphical interface, you've got a couple of choices. Uh, one is Zygma NAS and the other is FreeNAS. So basically, you just install a NAS distribution on your hardware from the get-go, and it will provide you a nice, easy web interface to handhold you through everything. But that's a whole distro, right? Say you've got it just installed on a desktop machine with, with a couple of disks in a pool. Yeah, that's that's what my answer was. I don't think there is a good I don't think there is a good solution for that right now. Just right. getting a GUI into any arbitrary pool, I don't think anybody's really built that yet. Maybe it's something that the Ubuntu people are, are planning. But they're a long way off from it right now if they are. Yeah, because the other thing is like any traditional tools are not likely to be very helpful here because ZFS is just so different. Like even just the most basic things like using the DF utility, you get a list of of how much disk space you have free. ZFS can be very confusing in that case because you see each different file system 
all is showing the amount of free space equal to all of the free space you have in the pool. And so when you write a file to one file system, the free space on all of them goes down. And this can even confuse monitoring systems greatly, actually. To be fair, this isn't really a ZFS specific thing either. I mean, I wouldn't have a good answer for somebody that wanted a similar visual tool to arbitrarily use on any given MD RAID or LVM setup either. That's that's entirely true. Like trying to manage LVM and MD RAID is one of the main reasons I like ZFS is not having to deal with those tools and their command line interfaces that are seemingly designed to cause pain. So is the solution here just buy your book then, Alan? It's definitely a good place to start. Uh, You might need to actually start the book before mine even. So in the the mastery series, there's a book that's just about disks and how partitions work and stuff. So if you're not familiar with that level of stuff, you might actually even want to start with storage essentials. But then, yes, the, the FreeBSD mastery ZFS book is probably a good place to start. At least 85% of it will apply to Linux. Uh, you know, there's only a couple specific bits. Again, when you're dealing with the, you know, the names of the disks are, you know, ADA0 instead of SDA in Linux and so on. And a few smaller things like that. Uh, but in general, all of the ZFS stuff is the same across both. Or dueling authors, you might choose to go to Ars Technica and uh, read my storage fundamental series. Yep. Uh, Jim's <laughs> done a, a very nice job of doing the introduction stuff there. Yeah, why not both at the end of the day? You might learn stuff. There might be a few bits here and there that are, are not covered or whatever. Yeah, and it also depends, you know, do you prefer reading websites or uh, an actual, like, thing you can get on, on paper or on a e-reader or whatever? A lot of times you want something that's shorter form, like what Jim has there, and it lets you get started and then go exploring on your own. And sometimes you want something that's a bit more uh, guided. Yeah, presumably another great way is grab someone's old desktop off FreeCycle or whatever, and just install Linux or FreeBSD or whatever on it, and just get some practical experience on something that is, you, it doesn't matter if anything goes wrong with it or whatever. The best part about ZFS is you can make a pool up out of a bunch of files on your computer. Yeah. So you can do all the experimenting you want based on a couple of empty files on your existing computer and don't even have to risk any data loss. You know, you don't want to do that in production, but if you just want to, you know, create a pool and put some files on it and to try replication and play with snapshots, you can do that with just installing the ZFS package on your OS and, you know, using the truncate command to make uh, three one terabyte files or 100 gig files or whatever uh, and just go to town on it. Um, the FreeBSD handbook has a, a chapter on this that even lets you do things like put some files on it, and then delete one of those backing files or erase it, like run it over with zeros with DD, and then use scrub to recover the broken data. And if somebody had ever tried that on ButterFS, they would have realized how broken it was. <laughs> so, so to be fair to Joe here, I mean, both approaches have a lot of merit and you should probably be doing both. Mm-hmm. Probably the first thing you want to do is, you know, more like Joe's approach, you know, get some free cycled crap and, you know, throw ZFS on it and see what it's like to actually use it. Then once you get a little bit more advanced and you want to do things like say, okay, you know, how much usable space do I get out of RAID Z2, you know, six disks versus RAID Z2, eight disks? Well, you can find out literally in seconds with the sparse file approach that Alan mentioned that doesn't need additional hardware at all. But 
I think for a lot of people, I know for myself, you know, if I really want to learn something, just going through dry classroom exercises isn't going to be my first step. My first step is going to get be to get my hands dirty yep. on something that I'm, you know, forcing myself to actually use. And yeah, whatever free cycled crap you find lying around can be a good po- place to start for that. Exactly. But, you know, if you're constrained and, and can't get some spare hardware just because you don't have room for it or whatever, you can do it with files. But yes, if you have a dedicated machine, it lets you get a lot deeper into it. Because one of the greatest things about ZFS is getting to play with the boot environment stuff. And that requires that you boot the operating system off of it, uh, whether that's Ubuntu or FreeBSD or whatever. Um, and so having a separate machine for it is great. Well, and you also can't figure out anything about performance from sparse files. Exactly. If you want to know how things are going to perform, you're going to need metal for that. Yeah. And this is the advice that I give anyone wanting to get into Linux or, well, it's always Linux for me, no BSD, but getting into the, the very first steps of any sort of admin, whether that is VMs or containers or whatever, if you've got a dedicated machine, even an old laptop or whatever, if you are not worried about breaking things, then you can go that extra mile and you can really push the, the limits of your knowledge. And if anything goes wrong, well, whatever, this is just a totally spare machine. Yeah, and dual boot environments suck for so many reasons. Uh, what you just mentioned is one of them. You know, you, you're always worried about breaking your primary environment if you dual boot with an alternate operating system. But an even bigger problem for me when I first started out is if I was dual booting, there were just too many times that I was like, all right, well, you know, screw this. I need to get something done. I need to boot back into the thing that I know. And then you just like stay there for a week before you realize you're not doing something with the thing you wanted to learn. Whereas if you've got, you know, this completely separate environment, whether it be a second physical machine or whether it just be a virtual machine, that's not preventing you from using your normal environment. It's a lot easier to devote time and to feel, you know, more like you're really trying it and doing things in it rather than it getting in your way. Yeah. All right, let's move on then. Shlomi wrote in and said, I'm managing a whole bunch of servers in a stock exchange colo data center. The colo has no means or intention of providing us with internet access. I can SSH into any of the servers, all running Ubuntu server LTS with loads of VMs. The machine I'm SSHing from does have internet access. So the question, what is the sane, maintainable, scalable way of performing upgrades, updates, and security patches to the Linux boxes? There's no way to answer that without having a better understanding of the actual policies and what he's actually going to be allowed to get away with, because ultimately you're talking about extending a limited form of Internet access, however proxied into that data center. Um, It would be really easy to say, run a local mirror on the machine that is allowed to touch the Internet. And, you know, from there, how you get that local, you know, deb mirror out to your machines that are in the protected network. Maybe you're tunneling it over SSH. Maybe you're doing something entirely different, but still really you're moving this data from the internet into your protected network. And you're going to have to explore the policy on that. Yeah. Like in my experience with dealing with banks and stuff, it was like they wanted write once media, like a, a DVD R and, you know, all the checks that happen, the update goes on the DVD-R, and that's the only thing that can go in the room and be used to update the machines. Even though uh, a USB thumb drive would have been so much easier to get the update in there, they're like, no, that can be modified. That's just not going to work. And so, yeah, the easy answer seems to be a mirror rather than trying to do something crazy with tunnels or something. But like Jim said, you definitely want to make sure that's 
going to be an allowed way to do it because you know part of the the idea here is that they they don't want things going in and out of that network that aren't authorized if the network is air gapped it's air gapped for a reason and usually you need some kind of air lock to get stuff in and out another possible answer would be you might literally just say well you run a local mirror and you know every once in a while you unplug that thing and sneaker net it over into the protected network and plug it in long enough to get updates and then sneaker net it back out again but Again, ultimately, you're talking about getting data from the internet into the protected data center that's not supposed to get stuff from the internet. So it's a policy question. You have to explore what the policy is going to allow you to do. And you may need to explore, you know, why does this policy make sense or not make sense? But it's it's just not something that we can give a one-size-fits-all and your security director won't yell at you answer to. <laughs> yeah, but the, with the bank I was dealing with, that was why it had to be a DVD, a right once DVD, because they weren't worried about what data you were bringing in, but they wanted to be damn sure you weren't taking any data out with you. Oh, hence it having to be uh, read-only. That makes sense. Uh, there's a bonus question here. The Windows VMs are not on a domain, mostly because they don't need it. Uh, and these machines aren't user-facing. They run a bunch of back-end code. So the same question applies. Is there a sane way to push or pull updates to these boxes? So I haven't been a Windows admin for a long time. Back when I used to build computers at a store, uh, we used a Microsoft security assessment tool thing to get links to the actual exe files for each of the windows updates and Mm. then basically put them all in directory and have a shell script that went through them and did them all and did one reboot so after we installed the os we could bulk install all the security updates and reboot but that was for windows xp so that was a long time ago i imagine you can still get the updates in that way but you know that's basically what wsus or whatever is doing but you can run wsus without active directory right it's not the normal environment, but you can do it. You don't have to have Active Directory to run WSUS. Um, you have to do some relatively minor registry hacking, but it is relatively minor. It would not be that hard to do. So that's that's probably your answer. Um, I think there are also some third-party utilities that act like WSUS, but are specifically designed from you know the jump not to use Active Directory. So looking into those might also be an option. But uh, this is, again, one of those things you're going to have to kind of figure out, you know, which one of these answers you like the best. Uh, I I haven't used any of them personally because uh, heretic that I am, I'm just like Microsoft has root on my Windows servers, whether I like it or not. And my choice is whether I get updates in a timely fashion and don't allow any random jerk to exploit my servers, you know, or or whether I get precious about whether or not I'm running updates and do end up getting hacked. So... I just try to put as little in between my Windows machines and their automatic updates as I possibly can. Right. But in this case, uh, these VMs are running in the on top of the Ubuntu thing in the, the air-gap data center. So yeah. basically, you need to use something like WSUS to basically build that local mirror of, of Windows updates. But again, you have the same problem you had with the Linux of you really need to figure out what the policies are uh, and what your constraints are to be able to get those inda- updates in into the, the protected network. So buy a DVD wallet thing to store all these DVDRs in then? It depends. But that that's how the bank I was dealing with dealt with the issue. There are ways to just get, you know, the Windows updates into executables that you can just run those executables directly on those machines. Um, for a while there, there were some pretty bad bugs in Windows update code that 
uh, they, it would end up requiring machines to run Windows updates for like 20 hours to get the new version of Windows update that was no longer buggy and screwed up and wouldn't work. And a lot of people got around that by, uh, you know, using this workaround to, to download the executable that would directly deploy this patch. You can do that for any Windows update. It's just it's going to be a lot of work if you're committing to do that to every single security update that rolls down the pike because I got news for you. It's 2020. They come down all the time. Yeah, they, they now tend to come down, you know, a specific patch Tuesday or whatever, but it means every patch Tuesday you have to go find the list of security updates, suck them all in and smuggle them into the data center and deploy them all. And, you know, you have to check the exit status on each one that you're trying to run and make sure it actually installed and deal with, you know, some of them need a reboot and some of them don't. And some of them can't be installed until you've rebooted after the previous one. You know, the only fun one was like, oh, this one's a .NET update. It has to be installed and then have a reboot before anything else can be installed. (laughs) And you just get these weird dependency chains and it's going to be slightly different every time. And... Hopefully you don't get stuck doing it that way. All right. Well, we better get out of here then. Uh, remember, you can email us show at 2.5admins.com if you want to ask questions. And you can find links to everything at just 2.5admins.com. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSnet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you in two weeks.